Welcome to Global Questions by YDS, the podcast breaking down global politics for young people who want to know more. I'm your host, Jen Marcocci. For today's Trailblazer episode, I am joined by Joshua Gilbert. And this real dream, I guess, that I have is of wanting to make sure that the land here is protected for the next 60,000 years. Joshua is a Wurrami man and a well-known climate and environmental advocate, having bridged the climate change and agricultural discussion to lead one of the first proactive international climate change motions. He has a very impressive working life, namely as the senior manager at PwC's Indigenous Consulting. He is also the co-chair of Reconciliation New South Wales. He is also studying a master's in philosophy and Indigenous agriculture. Today, we're talking about Indigenous activism and climate change. Before we get started, I would just like to acknowledge that this recording is being held on the traditional lands of the Boorong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Thank you so much for being here, Joshua. Thanks, Jen. Thanks for having me and thanks for your acknowledgement. I'd also like to up by acknowledging country and I'm on war on my country which is my parents country and just want to pay my respects to elders past present and emerging here in our language we say let us go together so just want to start by that and acknowledge country here and certainly pay my respect to elders here and across Australia it's their continuing legacy and knowledge which continues to guide me and and certainly a lot of our other young mob across the country what beautiful words as well could you please tell us a little bit about what you do in those roles and mainly around Indigenous activism, consulting in that arena? Happy to, Jen. So I guess the uh, work I do, I believe, is a combination of combining Indigenous knowledge and consulting with Indigenous people to get best outcomes for mob on the ground. So that often is working with and really listening to people with experience on the ground and providing that advice back to government to try and make policy recommendations. And at the same time, I guess, working with non-Indigenous mob as well to try and understand their journey, their perspectives, and using Indigenous knowledge that I've gained throughout my work and throughout my life, trying to provide that perspective on non-Indigenous problems to then try and create better policy and strategic outcomes for non-Indigenous mob as well. So it really is a combination of working with blackfellas on the ground to make sure that our views, our thoughts are shared and are really acknowledged by government and corporates. And I guess on the flip side of that is working with non-Indigenous mob to really understand their thoughts, their views, and actually interweave Indigenous knowledge through that to create better outcomes for all. Yeah, sounds like very interesting work. So how does Indigenous knowledge, agriculture and climate change actually intersect in the work that you do? Well, I think more broadly, it's an intersection of everyday life. So certainly if I think about it at a practical level for me today, being a young Aboriginal farmer, farming Western livestock through more Western methods, so that's you know cattle farming, sheep farming and horse farming. So providing Indigenous perspectives through that while also interweaving knowledge from mob to make sure that that's kind of considered in a new way. But certainly if I think about it in a historic sense, 
the process of colonization actually has deep agricultural roots. In fact, the genius of the word agriculture and colonization both come from the same word. So very much there is a point of contention, I guess, and some contention that I think our mob across the country still feel. And I think recognizing that every Indigenous community has their own history in terms of colonization. And I can only speak for ours and the knowledge that I've had shared with me. But I think acknowledging that our land here where I am today was acknowledged back in 1825. It was colonized back in 1825 by an agricultural organization. And through that, I guess that concept of understanding what our identity is through agriculture really started shaping our way of life and shaping what our history is. So there is this real historic element of identity through agriculture for mob because often agriculture was turned to by by mob to stay on land, stay connected to country and to really work with non-Indigenous mob for better outcomes on often stolen land. So really combining all of that and quite often some tragic stories, but also some incredible stories that come out of that survival, our identity as Indigenous people emerge today, which has led to uh, Indigenous middle class, which has led to Indigenous doctors and lawyers and all of those great things that we see. So really agriculture, I think, is the cornerstone that underpins all of that. Being young and in this space and being the link between Indigenous knowledge and also policy reform, would you consider yourself an activist in this space? And if so, did that activist label come naturally to you? I think the... Activist label I, I might have accumulated along the way has really been more for my climate change work and not so much my work with community. The work I do with MOB is, is really around truth-telling and storytelling and that really is the kind of premise of all that work, whereas the work I've done in the climate change space might have been seen to be more activist-based work. And I remember a story I did back five, six years ago now and really I kind of fell into activism and for standing up what was right and it was more in that pursuit of knowing that I wanted to speak about climate change knowing that it was impacting our family farm knowing that it was impacting our regional communities and knowing that we needed a broader discussion around that that really led to that activist kind of work I kind of saw it more as just work that needed to be done to make sure we could have the conversation it was working with activists very closely to make sure that we were getting good outcomes for farmers it was really policy reforms at organisation levels and lobbying governments to try and get change. So it, it did kind of come into activism through a very natural sense, but at the heart of it was this real passion for making sure that we had strong regional economies, that we have resilience and the resilience that farmers have was really appreciated and acknowledged. And this real dream, I guess, that I have is of you know being a young black fellow from this country is wanting to make sure that the land here is protected for the next 60,000 years so that my descendants, hopefully in 60,000 years' time, can be able to do that. Yeah. And in that climate change space, what activism have you been involved in recently? I think it's always ebbs and flows. And I guess um, the work I've done has really, I guess, started with lobbying government back in 2015, 16, creating some climate change policy that was really some of the leading climate change policy in the world in terms of an agricultural perspective and 
going to COP21 and sharing our story. And I think all of that background is important because it's the little bits today that continues to spur that kind of historical element there. So the work I do today is in some ways less about climate change. While I, I think there's a lot of work still to be done in the climate change space, I'm extremely optimistic that we'll get proactive climate change policy in the next few years at the least and that that will kind of change the climate change conversation and the climate change landscape. I think where I'm focused in that climate change discussion is wanting to make sure that we've got people equipped so that once that policy does kind of happen, we've got actually things to do to respond to the policy because I have this real fear that the activists and environmental groups that I have done work with often think that arguing for climate change policy is kind of this long-term game. And while it has been, and there's been a lot of work done by people in this space, once we get a form of climate change policy, I have this dread that there'll be this real desire to keep arguing for climate change policy or for better climate change policy. In my mind, that isn't enough. It, you know, We need to just accept what we get and move on. So a lot of the work I do now is really working with mob and I guess through my studies working through that Indigenous agricultural sense as to what our position and our identity is going to be on this landscape given that climate change is going to continue impacting our lands. Um, we know Indigenous people own 40% of Australia's landmass still today. That's going to be prime agricultural land due to climate change in the future. And only when we kind of unpack that do we know that Indigenous people are really the absolute cornerstone of making sure that we have good climate change adaptation going forward, that we can continue feeding our population and, and we can continue exporting food as well to make sure that people have access to good, healthy, safe, nutritious food. So would you say that that is the most important part of having Indigenous voices in the Australian climate change debate, like being able to talk about the land that they are cultivating and from an agricultural perspective mostly? I think there's probably two streams really. So I think it's important and it's probably like most things broken up into this strong historical element. So knowing that they're, Indigenous people are the only living people in the world who have stories and, and culture and orations and traditions that have stemmed around climate change events in the past. So the, the example I share a lot is being on country a little bit further north than here and heard climate change stories that are over 20,000 years old. And through that is a sense of survival and knowledge and awareness that needs to be brought into the current conversation and without mob sharing that story, should they wish, and, and it's not my story to tell either, but should the mob up there wish to tell their story, then that provides context for climate change and how it's going to impact Australia in the future. And then the flip side, kind of real statistics now is you know we've got indigenous people who are facing severe health issues and risks we know that there's a potential for indigenous people around the world really to be displaced due to climate change and we've got a strong sense and a strong you know amount of land to make sure that we can actually have healthy vibrant communities here so it's really about connecting some of the dots knowing that agricultural systems are going to change and that we have the power and the potential to shift Indigenous people thinking and thoughts to really, I guess, create better communities, stronger communities, and provide, you know, through the work and, and through my view, the agricultural sense of that to make sure we can have really healthy, safe, nutritious food within community as well. 
Would you say that First Nations people are affected more by climate change than other Australians as a result of broader societal injustices at all? To me, it's important to think about the history of that. So we've already lost quite a lot, particularly, you know, in more built-up areas. So if I think about where my people are, you know, the north coast of New South Wales here, we've lost the ability to to practice culture through town growth and, and urban development, really. So, you know, where I'm sitting now is the midpoint between the men's initiation grounds. So the, the hills straight in front of me are the, the men's initiation, where men's initiation would start. And the town kind of sits in the middle of the valley that young boys would have ran through to the other mountain behind me to become men. The school, just a few hundred metres away from where I am, was a major corroboree ground. So, so we've already lost quite a bit. Uh, I think there is a risk that climate change will potentially take more. But the other part I often think about is there's this real resilience of community, of mob, and we do have all that knowledge of where we've gone through some of these processes before. So there is the potential that we can continue our resilience, continue our strength, and we have faced quite a lot of tragedy in the past. So there is this optimism for me that we can actually take back a lot. We can relearn things that climate change might impact the land and, you know, the way things are done, but there are still natural sequences that we can follow as people, which obviously will change due to climate change, but don't have to be lost due to climate change. Yeah, I love your optimism. So what do you think is the best way for non-Indigenous people to support Indigenous activism as a part of the fight against climate change? Specifically in the climate change space, I think the thing that's often missing for me is a real respect of Indigenous voices. So I think there is a a great need for non-Indigenous mob to really listen to Indigenous mob, to, to work with them and understand some of these issues and that that voice can only be told by mob and shouldn't be told by um, non-Indigenous people. So I've been in events where you know, non-Indigenous people rely on Indigenous people's knowledge to kind of share their narrative. And, and while Better obviously shares the, um, the impact of what's happened, that's our story to tell and that's uh, our knowledge that we need to share rather than somebody taking that and adopting it for their own purposes. So that's the real risk and the, really the opportunity is to listen and to become an ally, to really work with us to strengthen our voices, to strengthen our understanding and to really share and, and work with us to create that better future. And as a final question, what are some practical ways for Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians to have a direct impact on the fight against climate change? I think about this probably a bit broader than climate change, but there is this strength of story and narrative that everyone holds, really. And only through sharing our story, through sharing our narrative together, can we create this joint future. So in my mind, there is this great desire that we need to really sit down and share a conversation together about what we jointly want for the future. And that has to be together. It can't be one more than the other. This is a shared landscape now we do have shared histories both bad and positive and only through working together through all that and really sharing what that ideal future is can we really work together to create that so i think we're pretty fortunate in australia i think we've been through quite a lot together and shown our strength of working together in the past and there is that optimistic view on 
you know, we can create change in policy and perspectives and really just come together for optimum gain as a society. And certainly, you know, with my view of making sure that we can farm this land for the next 60,000 years, that can only come if we work together. So it's sharing that knowledge, sharing that voice, sharing that dream and really listening to others who are sharing theirs to make sure that we can do that together. Thank you so much for your time. Very interesting content and very unique perspective considering, yeah, where you're from and where you're working and even your past career in climate activism or ongoing. So thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for your time and good luck on this season of the podcast. Thanks for listening to this Trailblazer episode. Make sure to check out Global Questions and the Young Diplomat Society on social media where you'll find more information about the topics we cover and upcoming events. If you want to learn more about Joshua or follow the work that he's completing, please follow the link to his website in the description. We'll see you next week. Bye.